I'm reminded of the Charlie Brown cartoon where <clears throat> Charlie and Lucy were lying on their backs looking at clouds. And Lucy said, what do those clouds remind you of? And Lucy said, they remind me of Kant's world of the ideals. Charlie Brown just lay quietly for a while. He says, well, I was thinking maybe a horsey and a ducky. <laughs> so I'm the person who's going to bring you the horsey and the ducky. We've had some profound messages, some wonderful calls to faithfulness and to resolve. And all of these need to sink deep into our hearts. I want to begin by reading a passage out of the book of Paul to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, where Paul summarizes out of his very profound experience with Christ and the revelation that he has received and the massive uh, complexities of much of his thought, beginning with verse 15 of 1 Timothy 1, he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That re reduces it to the reality. But I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And much of the resolve that we have needed in the history of the Christian church is to recognize, even with those simple words, the depth and the mystery that there is in them after he can talk about his experience with Christ as the savior of sinners and then say to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. To protect those realities, to protect the, the majesty and the transcendence and the beauty of God in our understanding of the truth and to protect our confidence in the very simple reality that he is merciful and he saves sinners. It is instructive and convicting to know that near the end of his ministry, the Apostle Paul described its course in terms of the rigors of a race, a fight, and keeping the faith. As he was in the process of being poured out as a drink offering, he testified, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This was given in light of his warning to Timothy that many would turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. He had used his knowledge of these events earlier to challenge others to unswerving fidelity, even as he applied the images to himself as an apostle. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run and only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone rain, running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave 
so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. I've isolated three elements of that fight necessary to achieve what we're calling an Athanasian resolve. First, there is a quest for personal holiness, perhaps the greatest of all fights. The acceptance of suffering. And third, diligence to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. Paul looked at his calling as a Christian and as an apostle as one that involved consistent training in order to run and hard discipline in order to fight. These were pursued without a lapse so that on the one hand, he himself would be in the fight, living faithfully according to the gospel. And on the other hand, he would always preach the faith, embrace the form of sound words, be faithful to the deposit of truth. The Christian calling to be a witness always involves both of these spheres of unrelenting stewardship. Paul told Timothy, meditate on these things. Give yourselves entirely to them so that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. The fight against unfaithfulness within and unfaithfulness without never ceases. Marvel not if the world hates you, Jesus said, for in a fallen world, a word about righteousness, judgment, and the need for forgiveness does not sit well. Thus, we're not surprised when we're told, even now, many antichrists have come, 1 John 2:18. At the same time, we're warned to see a soul-destroying enemy within. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Before we can be effective in our contest against the deceit and the aggressive errors of the world, we must learn to fight contra mundum in our hearts. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 lists the enemies in this battle as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We take to heart the promise the world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. As we fight against the lust of the flesh, we should not be surprised to find the most grotesque manifestations of this listed and illustrated in Scripture. All unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Romans 1. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Just as destructive are the internal manifestations of bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice, Ephesians 4.31. As Paul warned against how in the Christian, the flesh lusts against the spirit in giving the most comprehensive list of the destructive operations of the flesh, Paul lists 15 separate manifestations with the addition and things like these. The list includes both the externally destructive actions as well as the internally corrosive attitudes. So central 
is this fight against the world in us that Paul stated without equivocation, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. The lust of the eyes presents a dazzling world of things to possess and deceives us with a sense of well-being in the comforts of this world. Affluence, left unchecked as a desirable end, often dulls our spirits to the privilege, necessity, and duty of private prayer and the true and unchanging beauty of a holy life lived for the glory of heaven. The lust of the eyes drives us to hot pursuit of the security of earth. Matthew 6, 25 through 34. This lust seeks to gratify not only our own eyes, but considers what is impressive in the eyes of others. The pride of life perhaps is the most subtle and tactically confusing battle with the world as we train ourselves in the art of living contra mundum. The goal of being successful in a chosen field of work has an element of real stewardship in it when pursued to the glory of God, to approve the things that are excellent. Excellence is a goal to drive us to develop skills and gifts as a manifestation of the many-faceted grace of God, Philippians 1, 9 through 11. To settle for screaming and bellowing as singing is treason to the Lordship of Christ as the giver of the human voice. Every aspect of human capacities of mind, voice, creative impulse, dexterity, unusual coordination, extended mental concentration, tenacity and experimentation with the natural order of the world and so forth should be pressed for as full development as possible with the realization that we're exploring the capacities that God has placed within the human race, those created in his image. We can rejoice as humans, reflecting the divine glory when Leontine Price sings Gunod's Sanctus, when Willie Mays, who recently turned 90, makes an over-the-head catch on a dead sprint to center field in the polo grounds, when Salk and Sabin discover cures for polio, when Jefferson and Madison and others give a mature expression of political theory that maximizes human freedom yet under the rule of law. None of this should be minimized as anything less than a manifestation of divine wisdom. Motivational factors, however, in the moral connection of our hearts to such grand phenomena can create a worldliness called the pride of life. When done in order to evoke the praise of men, for ourselves, apart from any submission to the glory of God, the reward comes quickly, often superficially, and is soon done, Matthew 6, 5 through 18. Probably the pride of life hums tunefully beneath the surface of many a battle that is pitched against biblical truth. And while we guard against that aspect of the world in our hearts, we must be aware that it can also produce the hubris of heresy professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. The battle from without, however, is concurrent and tirelessly executed along with this battle from within. From the beginning of his ministry to followers, Jesus warned of the radical and unending distinction between his truth and the world. As he began, Jesus taught John and James and Peter and Andrew along with the great crowds that followed him Blessed are ye when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
Rejoice and be glad for your heart, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. Later, in a more concentrated narrative to his disciples, Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John continued the sober warning in his first epistle, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. And speaking of the pursuit of godliness that is profitable both for this life and the life to come, Paul observed, for to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, 1 Timothy 4.10. Paul knew this dynamic well, for he was first a perpetrator and then a sufferer. He called himself a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. He obtained mercy as an example of the invincible patience and sovereign grace of God. From his insolence and blasphemy, he was transformed into one who said, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. His consistent experience, his knowledge of the enmity between truth and falsehood, darkness and light, righteousness and unrighteousness, pride and repentance, led him to pepper his epistles with statements concerning the opposition that true ministers of the gospel would experience. It would come in the form of persecution, both from social concentrations of power and from official political policy. To Timothy he wrote, those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12. Do not be ashamed of the gospel or of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. In reminding Timothy of the gospel truth, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David raised from the dead according to my gospel. He immediately noted for which I suffer as an evildoer to the point of chains. So present was this reality to Paul and the churches that he began that he constituted an element of his prayers for them. To the Thessalonians he wrote, we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and your faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us. 2 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 7. I remember Curtis Vaughn told our second year Greek class that the theme of 1 Peter was, don't worry about suffering, it will just last until you die. (laughs) So Peter says, beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. As though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. 
Even in closing the letter, people looked at the activity of Satan and stirring up this suffering and said, resist him steadfast in the faith knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, established, strengthen and settle you. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you. That's it. That's scriptural. Amen. First Peter 5, 9 through 11. Equally as unsettling, however, and even more so, is the reality of doctrinal perversion from which the congregations of believers and the readiness that one must maintain to resist such corruption of truth. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring on themselves swift destruction, 2 Peter 2.1. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not of God. He who knows God hears us. And he who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the Spirit of truth and the Spirit of error. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. New Testament Christianity looks toward living peaceably with all men as an ideal circumstance. Be diligent to be found by him in peace, 2 Peter 3.14. This is the tendency of a biblical worldview in general and of the gospel preaching in particular. It does not appear, however, that the New Testament writers ever anticipated a time when Christians would not be susceptible to persecution from the world. We find this for three centuries following the death of Christ and scattered throughout the world today. Until heaven, never will the time come when these three aspects of the world that we're looking at do not call for circumspection, caution, watchfulness. First, the quest for holiness, avoiding those three lusts of the world. Second, the acceptance of suffering, realizing that the world hated Christ and will hate us. And the fight against heresy, the constant tendency to place myths and pure speculations in the place of revealed truth. In the seven letters of Ignatius, written around A.D. 110, his anticipation of suffering and death for the cause of Christ is quite remarkable. He manifests deep concern for unity in the church, both in doctrine and in its willingness to suffer. This would involve close attention to the teachings of the bishop in each respective congregation. A stringent opponent of a dualistic heresy known as Gnosticism, Ignatius had this to say to the church at Smyrna. I glorify Jesus Christ, the God who made you so wise. For I observe that you are established in an unshakable faith, having been nailed, as it were, to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, both in body and in spirit, and firmly established in love by the blood of Christ, totally convinced with regard to our Lord that he is truly of the family of David with respect to human descent, son of God with respect to the divine will and power, truly born of a virgin, baptized by John in order that all righteousness might be fulfilled by him, truly nailed in the flesh for us under Pontius Pilate, Herod the Tetrarch. From its fruit, we derive our existence. That is from his divinely blessed suffering. 
in order that we might raise a banner for the ages through his resurrection for his saints and faithful people, whether among Jews or Gentiles in the one body of his church. Ignatius was on his way to suffer death at Rome during the reign of Trajan. He consented gladly to the honor to suffer both at the hands of the God-haters even as the Lord had done. For if these things were done by our Lord in appearance only, his birth, death, burial, resurrection, post-resurrection appearances, then I am in chains in appearance only. Why moreover have I surrendered myself to death, to fire, to sword, to beasts? But in my case, near the sword means near to God. With the beast means with God. Only let it be in the name of Jesus Christ that I may suffer together with him. I endure everything because he himself who is perfect man empowers me. He wrote to the Roman church not to intervene on his behalf, exhibiting perhaps a positive relentless zeal for martyrdom beyond what the instructions of Jesus or the apostles warranted, but certainly show his courage and his determination to glorify Christ. I'm writing to all the churches and I'm insisting to everyone that I die for good, for God of my own free will, unless you hinder me. I implore you, do not be unseasonably kind to me. May I have the pleasure of the wild beasts that have been prepared for me. I will even coax them to devour me promptly. I will force them to it. Bear with me. I know what is best for me so that I may reach Jesus Christ. Fire and cross and battles with wild beasts, mutilation, mangling, wrenching of my body, the hacking of limbs, the crushing of my whole body, cruel tortures of the devil. Let all of these come upon me. Only let me attain to Jesus Christ. We find the same concerns about the integrity of the faith and willingness to suffer in its cause in the letter of Polycarp to the Philippians. Faced also with the heresy of Gnosticism, possibly in the person of Marcion himself, Polycarp argues strongly for the maintenance of apostolic teaching as well as the following of the apostolic example of courage and suffering. He had recently received some of the letters of Ignatius and recommended them as having great benefit for them. For they deal with faith, he says, with patient endurance of every kind of spiritual growth that has to do with our Lord. Essentially the three areas that we're looking at. For everyone who does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is antichrist. Whoever does not acknowledge the testimony of the cross is of the devil. Whoever twists the sayings of the Lord to suit his own sinful desires and claims that there is neither resurrection nor judgment, well, that person is the firstborn of Satan. Therefore, let us leave behind the worthless speculation of the crowd and their false teachings and let us return to the word delivered to us from the beginning. I urge all of you, Polycarp goes on, therefore to obey the teaching about righteousness and to exercise unlimited endurance like that which you saw with your own eyes, not only in the blessed Ignatius and Zosimus and Rufus, but also in others from your congregation and in Paul himself and the rest of the apostles. Be assured that all these did not run in vain, but in faith and righteousness, and that, after that, and that they are now in the place due them with the Lord, with whom they also suffer together. For they did not love the present world, but him who died on our behalf and was raised by God for our sakes. Forty years later, the 
the poly, this, this Polycarp who admonished Christians to maintain steady hold on the faith given them by the apostles had the opportunity to imitate the apostle in dying for the testimony of Jesus. The narrator near the end of the account says, he proved to be not only a distinguished teacher, but also an outstanding martyr whose martyrdom all desire to imitate. Even so, with all the critical theories, even with all the critical theories about additions uh, to the letter, we have reliable witness to this event itself and to the character and conviction of Polycarp in this moment of his final witness. The writer called it a martyrdom, which is in accord with the gospel. The setting of Polycarp's death was as a climax to an intense season of persecution filled with inhuman whippings, cuttings, burnings, and contests with wild beasts. The writer summarized, in turning their thoughts to the grace of Christ, they despised the tortures of this world, purchasing at the cost of one hour an exemption from eternal punishment. And the fire of their inhuman torturers felt cold to them, for they set before their eyes the escape from that eternal fire which is never extinguished. Polycarp had complied with an encouragement to hide, but he was eventually betrayed and captured. After being taken roughly to the arena, Polycarp heard a voice, according to the narrator, be strong, Polycarp, and act like a man. Then follows the taunting of the inquisitor, saying, have respect to your age, swear by the genius of Caesar, say, away with the atheists. Polycarp obliged by pointing to the pagan crowd, waving in his arm across the stadium and saying, away with the atheists. When the magistrate taunted, swear the oath and I will release you, revile Christ. Polycarp replied, for 86 years I have been his servant and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? When threatened with the fire, Polycarp responded, you threaten with a fire that burns only briefly and after just a little while it is extinguished for you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and the eternal punishment which was reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come, do what you wish. When the fire was lit, apparently it did not consume him, but he was killed then with the thrust of a dagger. So we find under the umbrella of the gospel and the saving power of Christ, thinkers and sufferers who defended Christianity and showed that they valued its redemptive truth and its infinitely excellent savior above life itself. Their contributions to the history of doctrinal development and apologetic interaction are varied, but consistently show within their variety of doctrinal expressions, <clears throat> sincere devotion to the truth of the Bible, the person of Christ, and the triune nature of God alongside their stance against and disdain for the approval of the unbelieving systems of the world. So it would be with Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Origen, and Cyprian. Athanasius was the heir of this sense that Christ and his truth transcends any reproach of the world and any element of the pride of life that hovers in our affections and issues a call for worldly approval. Athanasius, born 297, introduces us to a new stage in the development of enmity with the world. Athanasius often found himself at odds with the established religious order supported by the newly constituted Constantinian arrangement of church and state over the issue of the deity of Christ and peculiarly over the word homoousios, same essence. The Edict of Milan in 313 had produced a brief parenthesis of religious liberty into the Roman Empire that soon would fade 
as emperors found themselves in the position of needing control over the church to have stability in the empire. This meant that Christian theology became susceptible to the ham-fisted attempts of achieving political unity through ecclesiastical uniformity by harnessing the energies of the theological majority. Frederick Luce closed his article on Athanasius in the Schaffertzog Encyclopedia of Religious Knowledge with this summary sentence. Through evil report and good report, through the many changes of a long and eventful career, he maintained indisputably his title to the respect which we give to love of truth and honesty of mind. Exiled on five occasions between 335 and 366, Athanasius suffered such frequent disruptions in his ministry in Alexandria because of rabid opposition to his orthodox position and important writings on the person of Christ. Before his first exile, he was accused of murdering another bishop, Arsenius, and doing magical incantations with the bones of his hands. And Arsenius was found alive, and well, the charges were dropped upon the self-evidentiary nature of the evidence provided by Athanasius' question. I ask you, does any man have more than two hands? <laughs> the first exile occurred in 335 <clears throat> through November 337. When Constantine was convinced that the doctrinal disturbance in the churches was the product of Athanasius' refusal to get along, he probably was right. Athanasius refused to consent to the readmission of Arius to the church. Constantine sought peace more than orthodoxy, while Athanasius loved truth more than position. His second exile came in 339 to 346. He was put away seven years. He was put away under the influence of Eusebius of Nicomedia, who wanted a friend in the see of Alexandria, Gregory of Cappadocia, and accused Athanasius of stopping the flow of corn to aid the widows of Egypt and Libya. What will they come up with next? A third exile from 356 to 362 came as he, was, as he was escaping arrest by fleeing on a boat followed by his potential captors. His boat rounded a sharp, sharp turn in the river, reverse course, coming back by the boat of his pursuers. They called to the passing boat, have you seen that disturber of the peace, Athanasius? And Athanasius standing on the deck answered, yes, he is not far from you. <laughs> This exile was spent among the hermits of the desert and was ended when the pagan Julian, my middle name, <laughs> brought back Athanasius in order to foment more controversy in the church so as to discredit, in the eyes, discredit it in the eyes of the population. Those guys are just always fighting among themselves. Athanasius, however, proved too dangerous for the plans of the restoration of paganism as the state religion and was sent into exile for the fourth time from 362 to 364. A fifth exile occurred from October 365 to January 366. Well, for what crime was this African bishop, the black dwarf, driven from his pastoral post and hounded throughout the empire? He gave a succinct, uncompromised, clear, integrated confessional statement of the deity of Christ in the face of attempts to deny it on the part of Arius, or present less than absolutely definitive affirmation of the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, as in Eusebius of Caesarea. At the time of the Council of Nicaea, Athanasius served the Bishop of Alexandria as a trusted deacon. 
And because of his biblical and doctrinal astuteness, had already written a book on the incarnation of the Word of God, and particularly his extended engagement with the Arians, it is not difficult to, do, to deduce that he was highly influential in the final wording for the truly critical nature of the Creed of Nicaea 3.25. It's based on the rule of faith. The Creed says, and this is my loose translation of it, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things seen and unseen, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father as no other has been or will be, monogene, genethinta monogene, that is out of the essence of the Father, God out of God, light out of light, true God out of true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence with the Father, through whom all things have their being, the things that are in the heavens and the things upon the earth, who for us, all the beings of mankind, and to achieve our salvation, came down and was made flesh and was made man, suffered and rose on the third day and went into heaven. And he will come to judge the living and the dead and in the Holy Spirit. On the contrary, those who are saying there was when he was not, and out of nothing he came to be, or asserting him to be out of another substance or essence, or created, or that the Son of God is changeable or mutable, these are condemned by the Catholic and Apostolic Church. Well, in light of the particular errors of, a, of Arius, the creed incorporated several key affirmations that made Arius's consent to it impossible. The first is begotten out of the essence of the Father. Now this is not the word homoousios. This is not the same essence. This is talking about it's the very nature of God to be Father and therefore the generation of the Son is that which is, is permanent, it is eternal. Sonship and paternity belong essentially to God so that the existence of the Son, qua Son, is coterminous with the existence of God as Father. God does not become Father, but it is of His essence to be Father. The second is true God from true God. The Son is not an emanation from God, a powerful force created to sustain lesser and weaker created rational beings, a subsequent and lesser being than God, but the Son is true God, and His eternal providence is true God. The third defining phrase gives clarity to the meaning of begotten. Begotten, not made. Genethente u poethente. Arius had argued that since the Son is begotten, the origin of His existence is subsequent to the Father's eternality and is tantamount to being created. Not made definitively rejects that interpretation. Indeed, Athanasius argued that though in human relations the word begotten necessitates a subsequent origin, the meaning of the word refers to arising from one's very nature. It denotes sameness of nature. That is, Adam begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Philosophical clarity behind the words essence and substance is hard to pin down, but without equivocation, we can affirm that Seth, because begotten, possessed everything that made him human and distinguished him from any lower form of being. 
Even so, we affirm that the Son of God, as begotten, not made, possessed and possesses everything that constitutes deity and everything that constitutes the distinctness of sonship. The fourth phrase added under Athanasian influence was made man. Only the words made flesh were in the confession under consideration, which in many instances could be interpreted to mean all that man is, but in this instance it did not the way that Arius used the phrase. Arius interpreted as possessing Christ as possessing human flesh, but having the created logos as a replacement for the human soul in the stead of true human rationality. Never did a Christology miss the mark so far of what was necessary for one to be a savior. Arius gave us a savior, neither divine nor human. Athanasius insisted that for our salvation, the eternally generated son of God by the mysterious conception in the Virgin Mary took to his eternal personhood a full human nature. In order to make clear the exclusivity of the phrases added, the confession contains a clear rejection of the leading principles of Arianism. The Arian system rejected the eternality of the son, there was when he was not, and asserted that he came into being ex nihilo, out of not being he became, and was of a different substance and was created and that he was changeable. Such assertions must be isolated and specifically condemned <clears throat> as untenable, as contrary to revealed truth to the very being of the church and the goal of human salvation. Henry Bettinson says that Athanasius's energy and self-forgetful courage saved the church from a theology that was a combination of Unitarianism and paganism. The doctrine of one God and lonely transcendence together with the worship of one God that was less than God, of one who was less than God. He quotes G.L. Prestige as saying that Athanasius, single-hearted and sometimes single-handed, had saved the church from captivity by pagan intellectualism. Indeed, he had done more. By his tenacity and vision and preaching one God and Savior, he had preserved from dissolution the unity of the Christian faith. Well, if a person is to cultivate a biblically founded Athanasian spirit, what are some component elements? This is not an easy task and calls for clarity of thought, the willingness to form convictions, love of Christ and the brethren, and spirit-induced courage. First, I um, want to talk about five convictional issues. A person must develop and consistently cultivate an intimate knowledge of Scripture. We've heard calls for that today, <clears throat> and all of those calls are, should be crystal clear in our minds. Athanasius operated from cover to cover in Scripture, refusing to isolate passages from their entire canonical context. If we will require of ourselves a willingness to suffer and die, then we must be sure that an authority outside of our own whimsical mentality has given his transcendent and eternal authority to it. We must not accept or tolerate vital error built on isolated texts, unsupported in canonical context in the way that Arius did. For example, Jesus' words, the Father is greater than I, must be seen in the context of the person of Christ in the incarnation and his specific role in the eternal covenant of redemption. It cannot be taken to mean a subordination of essence. Second, believing in the absolute consistency and full sufficiency of Scripture 
and that it arises from a purpose of revealing holistic truth, one must drive himself to grasp the necessary connections in doctrine so that the whole canon of revealed truth reveal, uh, serves in constituting the doctrine. <coughs> Hear this passage from Contra Arianos, book one, dealing with Philippians 2.9. Athanasian shows that the mystery of the incarnation calls <coughs> for a careful application of specific parts of scripture to the necessary development in the human righteousness and moral victory of Christ. He writes, highly exalted does not signify the exaltation of the substance of the word. <clears throat> that was and is always equal with God. The exaltation is of the manhood. It is said that the incarnation of the word to make it clear that humbled and exalted refer to the human nature. The word being the image of the father and immortal took the form of a servant and as man endured death for our sake in his own flesh, that thus he might offer himself to the Father on our behalf. Therefore also as man, he, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> he is said to be highly exalted because of us and on our behalf. That is by his death we all died in Christ, so also in Christ himself we may all be exalted being raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, whither Jesus the forerunner has entered for us. Such direct connections accrue to the analysis of critical race theory vis-a-vis -vis biblical words. Justice, partiality, and equity haunt the vocabulary of both. <clears throat> but the definitions are different and so the conceptual frameworks collide. The biblical idea on these things relates to an absolute an eternal standard of righteousness and applies in all situations to all people, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, Greek or barbarian, male or female. Not only does it assume an absolute standard, but the possibility of objectivity in execution. CRT applies them in a relativistic sense based on an analysis of supposed environmental situations of privilege or intersectional disadvantage and oppression. Partiality and justice and an economy must be employed in order to compensate for past transgressions. Adopting this stance as an analytical tool presents a confrontation with the biblical views of creation as one man, of one man as the head of the entirety of humanity in whose disobedience we locate the fall and total depravity of all humanity, the revelation of the moral law and the redemption brought about by the one man, Jesus Christ. At the same time, philosophical racism just as egregiously violates these clearly revealed biblical doctrines. Attitudinal racism nurses the worst form of hubris and is an extravagant indulging of the pride of life in failing to bring the works of the flesh under the control of spirit-empowered truth. <laughs> Third, Athanasianism senses the vital importance of the particular truth field contained in the doctrine. The Trinity and the deity of Christ constitute a truth field, the forfeit of which also forfeits Christianity, forfeits forgiveness of sins, forfeits heaven, and welcomes hell. It is a revealed doctrine at the heart of both worship and salvation, a display of the glory of God in the inexhaustible wonder of his mystery and power without parallel. And we have no option except to affirm them in the most undiluted way, both in content and in delivery. <clears throat> In another truth field, perhaps because Obadiah Holmes rightly was willing to suffer a grievous whipping 
for the cause of believers' baptism, and scores of Virginia Baptists were imprisoned, should we conclude that Jonathan Edwards was not a holy man or out of touch with the Lordship of Christ because he did not do the same? Perhaps he should have been. And I think that he would have been had he been correct on the doctrine of believers' baptism. But his willingness to suffer for truth is vindicated when he was dismissed from Northampton over his insistence on more disciplined and holy practices in the observance of the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> Thomas Cranmer's early hesitations and mystifying compromises eventually gave way to a death-inviting refusal to deny Reformation doctrine. <clears throat> Fourth, the Athanasian spirit, therefore, includes a willingness to maintain it in the face of opposition, both to emperors and to other bishops. Athanasius pled the cause of the only Christ who could bring salvation for sinners. Though often in fearful situations, his view of the importance of this truth was so clear that he forsook personal interest, position, and safety to articulate a doctrine of the glory of Christ and his redemption for the truthful witness of the church to fallen humanity, humanity and the glory of God. <clears throat> a fifth area of conviction. We must be clear-minded in knowing the difference between an absolute of revealed truth and an inferred personal conviction. Based on the inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy of Scripture, no proposition or command rightly deduced from Scripture is optional in any situation for the Christian. Inferences sometimes are so direct that they amount to a revealed truth. Some have degrees of remoteness and cannot be established as a doctrinal or ethical absolute. Christ will return absolutely. Whether premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, or inmillennial is a matter of more remote inference. In specific cases, some more remote inferences may rise to be matters of conscientious conviction for one person, but cannot be imposed on the conscience of another. Worship the golden image calls for an absolute no in spite of the fire. Make your petitions in prayer only to, to Darius for 30 days. What an absurd irrationality that is. Evokes for the believer the most public and decided disobedience. Do not speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Deserves not the faintest acknowledgement of legitimacy, even under the threat of beating or imprisonment. Do not preach Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh or the Son of God who is the propitiation for our sins is a prohibition that never can have authority at any time from any source for that message is given by the eternal God for eternal life. Do not eat meat offered to idols may be an inferred conviction of conscience for one person and that person would be wrong to violate it. But to judge others in light of that conviction speaks evil against the law and judges the law, James 4, 11. Out of love for a brother, one may submit to the inference for the sake of the brother's conscience. But condemning another from an inferred personal conviction is saying that the law ought to set forth my position on this. Personal issues. <clears throat> Athanasius had friends who agreed and were willing to support. We need them too. Hosius of Cordova, had been at the Council of Nicaea in 325. He was among the most prominent supporters and advocates of the term homoousios. During his second exile, Athanasius spent time with Hosius and accompanied him to the Senate of Sardica. 
Also, he was able to receive support from Julius of Rome. During his third exile, Athanasius spent most of his seven years among the monks of the desert, writing his orations against the Arians, a major polemical theological work that set the stage on a broadly conceived basis for the acceptance of the Nicene faith. The monks took care of him, helped copy and distribute his writings. Many of their names we do not know, but they serve the cause of truth also against the world. There may be times when we say, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me. At other times, we may have cause to mention Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. He was ill, near to death, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Seventh, or the, uh, the third of these personal aspects of Athanasianism. We need a community of thinkers who help give refinement and clarity to the extension of the doctrine. The Cappadocian theologians following the exegetical and theological lead of Athanasius solidified this central doctrinal synthesis in a fully Trinitarian organization at the Council of Constantinople in 381. Henry Bettinson affirmed, the final triumph of the Nicene faith in its ratification at the Council of Constantinople in 381 is due to Athanasius more than to any other man. With unflagging energy, he defended the formula of the homoousion as expressing this truth, that if Christ is God, then he must be God in the same sense as God the Father is God. And then in last, in all of this, both with conflict and with co-belligerence, the Christian maintains a confidence that divine revelation will be protected in its decreed intention by the determining providence of the triune God. I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to guard until that day the deposit that he entrusted to me, 2 Timothy 1, 12.